0: Money, 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 money. Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Hello, and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and I am a certified financial planner practitioner. And this week's show is the best of the Ask Peggy questions. So you're going to listen to questions that people have asked me I provide answers. Remember, they're educational, so you need to ask your certified financial planner practitioner if they would work for you, and you can submit questions to my Facebook page, Ask Peggy. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And today, I want to come back to the last piece of my first segment is what do you do if your company doesn't offer a retirement plan? So for most of you, that would be something like a 401k plan or a 403b plan if you're an educator or work in the not-for-profit segment. So what do you do if that company plan doesn't exist? You really do need to take action. Because although I am not a doom and gloom Social Security person, I will say that Social Security was never designed to be your retirement income. And you are likely going to need more money than that to be okay during retirement. So you need to create a savings plan. It's probably easiest, if you don't have a retirement plan, you can open a traditional deductible IRA. You can fund that to $6,000 a year if you're under 50, $7,000 a year if you're 50 or older. If you don't want to take the deduction today and you'd rather fund it in after-tax dollars, you can fund a Roth IRA for the same amount, 6,000 or seven if you're over 50. Now, if you have a spouse who has a retirement plan, you need to take a couple of options. Number one, you should take as much advantage of that plan as you guys can do. So if you've got a spouse with a 401k, with a match, and you don't have a retirement plan at all with your work, you need to fund that retirement plan vehicle as much as you can. Certainly take advantage of the match. Try to put in more money than that. In most 401ks, the contributions you make are tax deductible later, or a lot of times there's a Roth option if you want to pay the tax today and then basically have income tax-free distributions if you follow all of the rules. So really take advantage of that spouse's retirement plan. Now, if the spouse does have a retirement plan, you are limited in the amount of money you make to deduct your own IRA. It's $193,000 a year or less. There's a phase-out So if you're making a relatively high salary, before you deduct your IRA, if your spouse has a retirement plan, check your income levels. A Roth IRA has the same phase-out schedule as the spousal IRA. Again, $193,000. If it looks like you're going to make good money this year, then check all of that. So the other option is to just open a plain investment account. Now, there isn't any tax benefit to this, but the advantage is you're funding your retirement. And if you opt for a after-tax account, so not a retirement account, you might consider putting items in that account that you're probably going to hold for a very long time so you don't trigger capital gains when you sell it, and maybe something that doesn't pay a lot of interest or dividends so you don't have current income. So for example, if you were going to own a stock fund and a bond fund, you might wanna own the large cap stock fund in your taxable account and the bond fund in your IRA because then you don't have to pay taxes on those dividends that are being paid. Of course, that's ultimately up to you and your certified financial planner practitioner and your CPA to make sure everything is good. The very most important thing to know is if you don't have a retirement plan at work, you need to make your own plan. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. Remember, if you have a question, go to ASKPEGGY.com. And that will also take you to my website, which is a good opportunity. If you'd like to follow my social media or see what I'm up to or read my blog, you can learn just a little bit about me there as well. So today's question, which I get regularly, is very closely related to saving for gifts, our last section. And today's question is, how do I tell my children we can't afford something? And I'm always amazed at the number of parents who feel like they're not providing their children with everything that they want to provide. And what's really interesting about it is it's not socioeconomic impact-related. So in other words, I have clients or people with quite a bit of money who are worried about things they can't do for their children, and I have people who are struggling a little bit financially who are also worried about what they can't do for their children. So this seems to be a universal crisis, which means that it's a really important question to address. And I want to start out by saying that I'm not advocating a freewheeling, open-ended conversation about money. Because remember that your children fundamentally don't have any control over this situation at all. And if you go into a lot of detail about being worried about paying the mortgage or paying the rent or making the car payment, it's just going to absolutely terrify your kids. And there isn't anything they can do to help. It's not common, but sometimes I hear parents talk to their children like they're friends, and, and they're not. They're your kids. You know, if you're really, really worried about how you're going to pay your rent, You talk to your best friend, you talk to your spouse, you talk to your partner. Your kids can't help you with that. But it's fine to talk generally about money, and it's also really good for your kids to understand that you don't have all the money in the world because money is incredibly abstract, even to a lot of grown-ups. And so with children, the money is absolutely not a tangible thing. It's not a real thing, and they don't understand why you can't buy them a new car when they're 12. So one of the ways is to start contextualizing the money. Put the price of what your child wants into terms that they have some grasp of. So if they ever go into the store with you and they buy a soda or a bottle of milk, then explain to them how many of those little individual-sized milk bottles What they want costs. You know, if it's 150 of them, that's going to help them understand what expensive means. Because if you tell somebody that it's $50 or $75, that's not real. But if you contextualize it into a number of things that they've bought and they deal with all the time, it's going to make it easier. Also, just because they say they want something, don't rush right in that moment to go buy it. See if it comes up several times, because kids will see something a friend has, or they see something advertised on TV, and oh wow, I want that. But then a week from then, they've totally forgotten about it. And if you've rushed right out and bought it instantly, you've bought them a lot of stuff they don't even really want. When you ask them what they want for the holiday gift, See how often they come back to it. It'll give you a much better idea what it really means to them. Finally, let them know that money doesn't define happiness. I always say prosperity is much more than money. Explain to your children that your family is prosperous even if they don't have a lot of money because of the love that they have for each other and the way they take care of each other. That's what true prosperity is. And if you believe that, they'll believe it more easily. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And today's question is about life insurance. Peggy, When I told my friend I was buying life insurance, he told me to buy term and invest the difference. Is this good advice? This advice is very, very commonly told to people. I don't know whether you've ever heard if you're in the life insurance market that's and they say, oh, don't buy whole life insurance, but go ahead and buy term, which is generally cheaper, and invest the difference. So you'd take the whole life premium, find out how much that was, get the term premium, and then invest that difference in an investment account and have the term insurance. And, you know, sometimes this is really good advice and sometimes it's not. As with everything else in financial planning, it depends on your situation, And that's one reason why everything I do on this show is for education and not investment advice. I mean, the reason that that's part of the regulatory rules is I can't stand on the air, on the radio and say, you need to go do this because I have no idea what's going on in your life. I have no idea about your situation or your circumstances. And so that's why everything I talk to you about is educational because this whole buy, term, and invest the difference thing is super popular. But let's break it down a little bit to help at least give you some of the variables you need to think of. First, the Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards, so the CFP board, does not view insurance the same way that some people inside the insurance agency view it. They view it as the way of managing the financial risk of your death. So this is to provide funds to take care of people in case you die. They don't see insurance as an investment vehicle, and they don't see insurance as a savings vehicle. So when you're buying an insurance policy, you're buying insurance to manage the risk. So now what you need to look at is go back to the cash flow we've been talking about and look at the cash flow needs of the beneficiary of your life insurance. Does that cash flow need come to a definitive end, like paying off a mortgage? Does it is it for someone who's so much older than you are, that they're not going to outlive the term component. So in other words, I had a term policy to help provide money for my mom when she was so sick because that gave me the ability to have money set aside for her. Does it need to be more than term? No, because there was no way she was going to live longer than 30 years. So, you know, sometimes the circumstance, if the need comes to an end, and you know it comes to an end, then sometimes term makes sense. But sometimes those needs don't come to an end in a predictably regulated fashion. And if you think that your beneficiary is going to need money after the length of the term, then whole life might make more sense. I know people who are providing an income amount for, like, spouses who never want to work. And so whole life sometimes makes sense. Whole life doesn't come to an end. If you have to renew a term policy later, it can get really expensive. So you don't want to think about, oh, I'll buy a 30-year term policy and then I'll just buy another one. Because at the end of that, or even 20 years, maybe medically you don't qualify, and the premiums are going to be much, much higher than they are now. So it's very important when you're putting together your insurance plan to do some cash flow planning along with it and not let the insurance agent or your friend or somebody you saw on TV or read an article in the paper or listen to my radio show and say, oh, well, this person told me to do that, so that's what I'm going to go do. You've got to work with a financial planner look at the cash flow needs, and then make a decision that will actually help you make the right choice so that the benefit is there when you need it. The last thing I have against buy term and invest the difference is people don't actually invest the difference. They just buy term and they pay less for it, but then that difference never winds up in the savings account. If you decide to buy term and invest the difference, you really need to invest the difference or the whole system falls apart. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Hello, and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and I am a certified financial planner practitioner. And this week's show is the best of the Ask Peggy questions. So you're going to listen to questions that people have asked me, I provide answers. Remember, they're educational, so you need to ask your certified financial planner practitioner if they would work for you, and you can submit questions to my Facebook page, Ask Peggy. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and this is the Ask Peggy segment. So remember, if you'd like to send me a question, go to askpeggy.com, that's A-S-K-P-E-G-G-Y dot com, and send a question to me via um, email. So the question today, I have been asked a lot. I was actually asked a lot about cryptocurrencies a while ago, and then it kind of all died down when they crashed. And now the questions are starting to come up again because cryptocurrencies have had a fairly good run recently on increasing their value. So people ask me what I think about cryptocurrency. And I know it crashed. I know it's coming back. But I really still have to give the same answer I gave the first time. I don't think much of cryptocurrency. And let me tell you why. Let's start out. You know, in the last section, we were looking at why do you buy insurance, right? We're trying to ensure the risk of your death. So let me ask you this question. Why do we have currency We have currency, so we can buy and sell things. And if it's an open market environment, then we buy and sell at a price that we both believe to be fair, right? If the buyer doesn't want to pay what the seller is trying to get you to pay for it, then the buyer can say, no, I'm not gonna buy it. And now the seller has two options, right? They can either say, fine, I'll wait for somebody else, or they can lower the price of the product until the buyer is interested. You know, in a microcosm, this is how the stock market works. You've got people who are wanting to buy securities, you've got people wanting to sell securities, and they negotiate the price. The price is in a currency. Now, I understand that the value of the dollar floats. That means it's not a set value that does not ever move. It rises and falls with other currencies. And remember from the first section, I was talking about China devaluing their currency over the weekend, and it's led to a 500-point decline in the stock market this morning. Why is that? Well, it's because we don't want our currencies to change in value because when we negotiate the deal, it's assuming that the currency is going to be worth roughly what we think it's worth. You know, the floating of the dollar is tiny amounts of money. And so it's when you leave on vacation going overseas, when you convert to the foreign currency and then you come back, you know, maybe you've made a tiny amount of money when you convert it back to the dollar. Maybe you've lost a tiny bit of money, but I'm talking pennies at the very most. A cryptocurrency movement, on the other hand, is a major change in the value of the currency. So, you know, people are all excited, oh, I'm gonna invest in, in whatever your currency of choice is because look how much it's going up. Okay, that is not a good thing for a currency. It's a great thing for a stock, but a currency isn't a stock. So imagine, you know, this is coming out of Oklahoma and a nice house in Oklahoma, can, you can get it for $200,000. So imagine that you're trying to negotiate the price of the house, you're trying to get it around $200,000, and then the currency moves by 25%. Well, the deal's going to blow up. I mean, somebody isn't going to be able to stand that deal. I mean, if you're trying to buy it for two hundred, now it's a hundred and fifty. well, good for you, but the person selling it isn't going to sell it for that. So I do not see how, as long as cryptocurrencies are this volatile, they can be used for any major purchases. They're used a lot in black market trading, and that slippage is just part of the cost of using a currency that can't be traced. But for most normal, in-the-bright-light-of-day transactions, nobody wants their currency to move that much. It messes up the deal. There's no chance, to my mind, that a cryptocurrency is going to be able to, in any meaningful way replace the dollar or any other foreign currency, even China that just got devalued. And that's a little weird, but that's nothing compared to what the cryptocurrencies are doing. So be very careful with this. It still feels like a bubble. I think what people find appealing, the, the growth in value, has got to be fixed before it's a real currency. And then if that's fixed, I'm not sure people like it anymore. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and in honor of today being the first day of school in Oklahoma, I would like to talk about a question I'm asked often, which is, how do you pay for education costs? And I want to talk a little bit about some, some strategies that maybe you haven't thought about Yes, the 529 plan can be funded in after-tax dollars, like a Roth IRA, then the growth is income tax-free, and so if you have a relatively young child and you're sure that they're going to go to college, you can put money into a 529 plan, and then those funds, the growth is where the real tax advantage to the 529 is, because... The rest of the money is in after-tax dollars, but if you use the growth for the right reasons, then you never have to pay income tax on that. It's tax-free growth. But there are other things that you can do to help pay for college. And one is really paying close attention to any scholarships or grants your child might be eligible for, paying close attention to any, um, hobbies or talents or anything about the major that they're wanting to pursue. You know, there's quite a bit of money these days in the STEM measures, those science and technology. Maybe they have a musical ability or a sports ability, or you're a member of a group that has funds available. Really tap that out. There's a lot of money out there if you'll just go find it. Related to that, grades are unbelievably important for scholarships. And I understand teenagers want to earn money, and I understand that it can be nice not to pay for their gas, but sometimes spending money engaging in high school activities and earning good grades actually makes you more money in the long run than working in a fast food restaurant. Additionally, the college entrance exams are a contact sport. So make sure that your child takes practice, practice SAT and ACT exams, takes courses on how to do well on these tests, because great test scores will help them get money as well. Finally, it's great to help your kid pay for their college, but it's more important that you not be a financial burden on them. So I want you to be sure that your own retirement funding strategy is in place before you help your child with education because you don't want to be a burden on them later in life, no matter what you want to do today. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And remember that if you would like to submit a question to the show, you can go to askpeggy.com, A-S-K-P-E-G-G-Y.com, and type a question where you find the place to do it on the homepage. So my question from today is, Peggy, I have a small business retirement plan. What is my deadline for making employer contributions? And I don't know about you guys, but I can't believe that business taxes, even with an extension, are due next month. This is August 19th, and your business income tax return is due September 15th, even with the extension. So, TikTok, if you were putting it off because of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act changes, you're going to have to start doing it. And that extension related tax due date ties directly to funding small business retirement plans. So the two kinds of small business retirement plans I want to talk about today are the SEP and the SIMPLE. And the easiest way to tell them apart, and, and there's many, many characteristics, but the easiest way is, remember with the SEP, all of the money goes in on behalf of the employer, and it has a higher deferral limit. The simple allows employee contributions as well, as well as then either an employer deferral or match, and it has a lower contribution level. I actually think simples are a little bit more common than SEP simply because most small business owners don't want to have to put all the money in themselves. So with the simple, that employer either matches or provides non-elective contributions to the employee accounts, and that money is due by September 15th on the due date of the taxes, including any extension. So, I mean, if we get lucky this year and the 15th is on a weekend, then we get like an extra day. But basically, you've got about a month. And so you didn't have to actually put the money in their account until this time, the employee has to have it into their account within 30 days. So if an employee is deferring money and you're taking it out of their payroll, that needed to go in within 30 days of the end of the month or you're in trouble with the Department of Labor and a number of other places. But the money that you're putting in doesn't have to go in until the day you file your taxes. And there's a correlation there because, remember, all of that comes out as a deduction on your taxes. A SEP works the same way, except now all the money is coming from the employer, and so that money goes into the account no later than the date that taxes are due, including extensions. So if you were um, handling a small business retirement plan last year, if you've got a SEP or you've got a SEP, and you were waiting to put the money in as long as you possibly could, You've got a month and you need to make sure that money is in and credited to their accounts by the time your taxes are filed. It'll cause a lot of issues if you don't. Now, if you're just a normal employee and you're thinking, wow, I have this long to file or to put money in my IRA. No, you don't. IRA contribution limits or contribution due date is the day the taxes are due and it does not include the extension. So if you are going to fund an IRA for 2018, it had to be in by April 15th of this year. It's too late. They give the business owner an extension that they do not give the average citizen. It's important to know that so that you can be sure that everything's done and you don't try to put money in mischaracterized because that can create a bit of an accounting nightmare for you. So... Just make sure you get the contributions in, get your taxes filed, and everything will be well. I can't believe how fast the week went again. It just seems like every show goes faster and faster. See you next time. Bye. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDowiak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.